This book of the Bible has been called pessimistic, puzzling, unsettling, misunderstood. There have been Jewish scholars and Christian scholars that have struggled with its place in the Word of God as being a book of the Bible. Uh, People who have questioned whether or not it actually belongs. And yet the message of Ecclesiastes is entirely consistent with the Word of God. It is a book that is about man's search for meaning in life. Trying to understand what's the point. Why are we here? What does God have in mind for us? There are books of the Bible that get to that point quite directly. They bring us to see our creator very clearly. They set him before us and they show us directly, this is God. Worship him. This is what you are called to. He is who made you. Ecclesiastes takes a little bit more of a circuitous route to get there. A little bit more of an indirect approach to show us what the answer is to this question about the meaning of life. Ecclesiastes will take us ultimately in the end to the worship of the one true God, but it will do so by testing a whole series of sort of commonplace idols, those sort of um, God substitutes that we we bring about in our life, things that we, we try to put in God's place, that we sort of give our devotion and energy toward, The writer of Ecclesiastes will will sort of work his way through a series of these idols that all pretend to offer some kind of satisfaction, some kind of substantial meaning. Ecclesiastes is a great book if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ because it is a constant reminder to you that if you are seeking your ultimate joy and satisfaction here amongst people and things, you will wear them out. You will wear out the people around you if you you put too much on them to try to satisfy everything in your life. It teaches us again and again to hold things here on earth loosely, to grip Jesus Christ and hold fast to him, but to hold everything else loosely. Life will let you down. People and stuff will fail you. And Ecclesiastes is a constant reminder to come back to only the one true one who you can cling to, who is faithful. Ecclesiastes also speaks very clearly to you if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior because it will repeatedly show you the utter futility of trying to find that ultimate joy and satisfaction and meaning in life in people and things. It will remind you that it is a vain effort to try to find that somewhere on this earth. Look at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll start with the the author, at least from a human perspective, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. There is some debate over who the human author is of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you know a little bit of Old Testament history, you look at that and go, son of David, king in Jerusalem, that must be Solomon, right. That's the one who fits historically in that. That is the one, Solomon is the one who historically both Jewish scholars and Christian scholars have held, is the writer of this book. As you go through it, there's certainly a lot of places where you look and go, someone gifted by God with such incredible wisdom and who as king had wealth and so much at his fingertips could write this. He had the the wherewithal to to go through some of the experimentation in life that Solomon did. Um, 
Solomon's name is not given in the book. We have that description. We don't have his name as we do in Proverbs. At the beginning of Proverbs, it does, he does use his name there to identify himself. It has been questioned. One of the first major figures to question whether or not Solomon is the human author behind this was Martin Luther, who had his own struggles with the book of Ecclesiastes. And since the time of Luther, there have been a number of scholars who have raised issues about language and, and where this fits in terms of history and have said this, this doesn't necessarily seem to be sort of Solomon's handiwork. I, I think there are equally good counterarguments. I'm not going to try to give you the argument and the counterargument. I, I lean towards Solomon. I think he's probably still the most appropriate um, suggestion here as to the human author. The crucial truth is this is God's word. We understand by inspiration of Scripture that this has been given to us by God, and so it is God speaking for the purpose of his glory and, and our growth. And that's where we need to respect it and humble ourselves before it as being Scripture. What does seem clear is that God chose an older, least respected, wiser man to write this so that it would be someone who could speak from sort of a wealth of life experiences, someone who could sort of take a been-there-done-that approach to life, who, who we could listen to and know that this wasn't just some rookie or some young person who's sort of imagining what life is like and what the search for meaning is life. It's someone who's actually tasted and tried and, and tested it all and is able now to look back. And so the speakers identified in verse 1, ESV says the preacher, uh, some translations will say the teacher, it's an attempt to translate a Hebrew word that is koheleth, kind of an unusual word for us, but it has the idea of an assembler, someone who gathers or assembles, and it seems to be, in context, the idea of somebody who assembles people to listen to teaching, somebody who gathers sort of a crowd and says, hear what I have to say. So it is sort of the notion of teacher, preacher, gatherer. Uh, the word, the English word Ecclesiastes comes from a Latin translation of Koheleth, and if it has some ring of familiarity to it, if you go to the Greek New Testament, you know that the church is regarded as the ecclesia, the, the gathered ones, the called out ones, and so we see a little bit of that here, that, that gathering of people to listen to the preaching. So I want to read verses 1 through 11. That's the passage we're going to look at this morning. And then what I want to do is just kind of go through some themes. Two major ones, four, I don't want to say minor ones, but four that, that are important, but two major ones as we go through this that will help us understand the book. So the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. 
strike you as a little bit discouraging at this point? And it's kind of the, the tone, and this is a great place. He, he just starts right in. So in these early verses, there's several themes for us that will help us understand Ecclesiastes. And again, two of them are important. The first one is a word. I'm going to use the Hebrew word because I think we need to understand this word better than just simply the English translation. And it is the Hebrew word hebel. Hebel shows up 35 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. H-E-B-E-L is kind of our transliteration of it. Depending on what your English translation is that you're reading from, it is that word that's translated as vanity. If you have an NIV, it's meaningless. Uh, seem futile in, in some translations. None of those, vanity, meaningless, none of those on their own sort of sum up and capture the whole meaning of the word. Because another common way of translating hebel is vapor or mist. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is talking about idols. In Isaiah 57, 15, he says, The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. It's the picture of sort of these, these idols are so worthless that a breath just sort of blows them over. If I were to take this, and, and for those of you getting nervous, it's not Advent. We're still six months away. We've got lots of time. This is just by way of illustration. If I were to blow this out, there it is, Hebel. If I try to grab that, I can see it, and I can grab it, but it's still not there. That smoke is a picture of that word, vanity, futility. It's right there. I can, I can touch it, but I can't really hold it. It doesn't really have substance that affects me in any way. It just sort of shows up. And then it's gone. So when the teacher says, vanity, vanity, don't simply stop there and go, okay, so this is vain, this is meaningless, I get what that means. Picture that. Picture that sort of illusion, that, that sort of like a mirage, that you see it, and, and it but, but it's real. It's not completely a mirage, because it is real, and you go after it, and yet the closer you get to it, and the nearer your hands finally get to holding on to it, the more futile it seems, the more vanishing it is, the more you can't grip it and hold on to it and find meaning in it. Because what looked so attractive in appearance just disappears, and it's fleeting, and it's gone, and it didn't satisfy your soul. Now, if you read that back into verse 2, particularly the last part of the verse, the preacher says, vanity of vanities, all is hebel. The teacher's saying something here that we really hope is hyperbole. He's, he's got to be exaggerating for effect here. He can't really mean that everything, all, is hebel. All is unsatisfying, all is illusory, it's, it can't be held on to, it, it doesn't satisfy the soul. Can he really mean that? As we study through Ecclesiastes, it's very clear that that is exactly what the writer intends to say. That yes, I've, I've been there and I've done that. I've tried this, I've tried that, and it all is hebel. 
He's not trying to exaggerate. As a matter of fact, he's going to come back near the end of the book in, in Ecclesiastes 12.8, and he's going to conclude again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He wants to, he's, he's doing what a teacher should do, tell you what he's going to say, tell you, and then tell you what he said, and he's saying, that's what I, I, I want you to understand. It's all hebel. Pretty depressing message. And it certainly would be an awful message if there was nothing to offset it. If there was no other message to go along with this to sort of fix it in some way or, or give us another understanding of it, it would be a terrible message. Everything is fleeting and futile, and then it's gone. He has gathered us together. The teacher has gathered this crowd to say, folks, it's all Hebel. Tried it all, and that's the best I can offer you. And that is what he's going to try to prove through his experience throughout this book. And so verse 3 is one example of that. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Second major theme. First one is that word hebel. Second major theme comes up in that, that last phrase in verse 3 that is what helps us to understand hebel. If it's all hebel, if all of your hard work, if your labor, all of your effort, all your output ultimately is, is Hebel, then, then the, the right question to ask is, what's the point? Why am I doing this? Why am I putting forth this effort? What do I gain from all of this labor and the way he says it here, at which he toils under the sun? That's the second theme is that phrase, under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, the only place it appears in the Old Testament is in the book of Ecclesiastes, and here it appears 27 times. And they're not throwaway phrases. He's not saying it just to add color to the scenery when he says, under the sun, as if it's some sort of picturesque phrase. He's saying it with a very purposeful way. Under the sun is all about your vantage point in how you look at life. Under the sun is a description of how you interpret life. Much of what we're going to study over these next couple of months in Ecclesiastes will sound terribly discouraging and terribly pessimistic, and it is. If your only perspective on life is how things appear here on earth. If your view is limited with blinders, with sort of a ceiling up here, and everything is just what's right in front of you in terms of people and stuff, and, and the way things work, if that's it, if that's how you evaluate life, it's based on what you can see, feel, and touch, smell here under the sun, then there's not much hope. Philip Ryken writes this, to see things under the sun is to look at them from the ground level, taking an earthly point of view and leaving God out of the picture. If you leave God out of the picture, if you block God out, if you determine that you will move through life and not give God a, a consideration and not try to see how he reveals life through his word, then you are doomed to that experience of Hebel. Fleeting, futile, all goes away. There is no ultimate satisfaction for your soul if there is nothing beyond the sun. So by repeating that things look bleak and futile and fleeting under the sun, what the teacher is saying, if this is all there is, if this is what life is about, if, if it is just 
live in the moment, see what you can get now, you're here for a while, and, and all that life really is are the routines. Work, eat, sleep, have some moments of pleasure, maybe watch a good movie, hang out with friends, play a game. You know, there's, there's some moments in all of that that, that that feel good at least. But if that's it, work, sleep, eat, some moments of pleasure, then you grow old, then you die, eventually you're forgotten. He says, if that's it, it's all Hebel. That's all there is to it. We should be doomed with that question of what's the point. If that's really all there is, that should bother us to the core. And if you're apart from Jesus Christ this morning, that question should, should just drive you to think, is this it? Is this all there is? Those sort of cycles? Earthly things will never provide ultimate joy and satisfaction for your soul. They can be pleasurable for a season. But your creator created your soul with a longing for something that transcends this life. He didn't make you to say, I get 60, 70, and it's good, and I've got a good house, and then I die, and I'm forgotten. That's, that's, I feel great about that. He made your soul to long for something more, for meaning and substance. And in fact, he'll even say here in Ecclesiastes, he made your soul to live beyond this life, he made it for eternity. And so something there is longing for something beyond the sun, something substantial. If life, if, if pleasure in life, if the ultimate end in life is, if I can just have this, fill in the blank, sex, success, work promotion, house, retirement, you know, perfect retirement, fill in the blank. If, if satisfaction, if meaning in life is fill in the blank, it's one of those, you will never find ultimate satisfaction. You will keep grasping and grasping and you will be like the writer of Ecclesiastes saying, okay, now this, this didn't work, so let's fill in the blank with something else. Something's got to be better. And so the teacher now is, is essentially setting the case to plead with you and I that there is more to life than under the sun. The things that bring us joy here under the sun are shadows. The idea is that the things that we enjoy and the things that bring us pleasure here to whatever fleeting degree it is are designed to be shadows that point us to a substance. That say, okay, this, this goes away. This doesn't last. There must be something that does. The creators made it that way, that those things would just be the shadows of the substance that we would truly long for. He's trying to drive us ultimately above the sun. So there's two major themes there that really will set our course through Ecclesiastes, and we'll see them over and over again as we study them. We could summarize it with the phrase, the fleeting nature of life under the sun. That's the description. It's the fleeting nature of life under the sun, and frankly, it's God's design that it be that way, so that we don't think we can find it here, the meaning and the satisfaction that we long for. Some other themes, though, in these opening verses that help shed light on the book. One of them is what we saw in verse 3, that word toil. More than 30 times he uses that word for toil or labor in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is not the typical Hebrew word for work or service. It is a word that carries with it sort of the idea of drudgery, difficulty, 
struggle in terms of work. Uh, it's, it's signaling the idea that work can be hard. Any of you ever had that experience where your job has been maybe a little frustrating? You've struggled a little bit at work. Anybody able to share in that experience one time or another where work has been like toil, like, like drudgery? Well, that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to point out. That's what the teacher is saying. It's not that work is dishonorable or bad. It's important and it's necessary, but there's no question that there are times work can be strenuous, and frankly, there are times when it can seem miserable. And that's the point he's, he's showing here, because hard work is a topic that all of his readers can relate to, particularly in this ancient culture. There were no free rides. You wanted to get through life, you were going to have to work hard to get through life. Things didn't come easy. And he understood that his readers knew this. Life was hard. Everyone that was physically able to worked. They toiled just to get through the day. They didn't have the conveniences that, that we enjoy. It was a labor just to live. And they could all relate to how much toil and weariness was a part of everyday life. And so that's why verse 3 asks this question. So, so what do you get for it all? You put out all of this energy, and so for the people in his culture, you poured all that energy, and you got your meal, and you got some water to drink, and then you went out the next day, and you put all that energy out, and you got a meal, and you got some water to drink, and then you did it all over again the next day. It's like, what's the point? What's the profit in all of that? What does man gain? Sounds a little similar to some words that Jesus Christ spoke. Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, Matthew, chapter 16. You heard him say it. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own what? Speak to me. Loses his own soul. Yeah. He gains everything. He's worked and he's worked and he's labored and he's successful and he has stuff that, that, that people are impressed by and yet Jesus says there's a choice here. He either lives for under the sun and all the accomplishments and buildings and success he can have, or he lives for something different that's above the sun. He lives for a God who will rescue his soul and save his soul from, from punishment and eternal death by sending his son Jesus Christ to rescue that sinner. We're going to see a lot about work and toil. Another theme in Ecclesiastes introduced in chapter 1 is that life is like running on a treadmill. Let me read the, this section again and, and just notice the, the redundancy, the repetition that he's trying to communicate. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and around to the north, around goes the wind on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Man can't understand, uh, cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear filled with hearing. What, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Here's the, the teacher saying to us, listen, it, it, it's just these endless, redundant, treadmill-like cycles. People are born, and they die. The sun rises, the sun sets. Tomorrow morning, it will rise again. Wind blows, it goes around, it comes back around, it blows again. We stand at the side of that beautiful brook, and it, it 
babbles through and we think how beautiful it is. And he says, yeah, so what? It runs to the Occoquan and it runs out of the Potomac and it runs out to the Atlantic. And the Atlantic never gets full and it never reaches a point where it changes. It just does the same thing all over again. It's absorbed into the atmosphere and it rains and it starts all over again. He's looking at life going, this, this is just an endless cycle. It's like, a, it's like the rat race. We just keep doing this. We go to work and we come home and we go to work and we come home. There's nothing new. This is the epitome of discontentment. Looking at life and seeing it's just the same, random, endless cycle. And his conclusion is, is that it's all wearisome and tedious and maybe even pointless. There's nothing new. There's nothing new. What happens today happened before. It's going to happen again tomorrow. It's not anything new. Just the same things, just repackaged, different form, but happening all over again. It's like running on a giant treadmill. In fact, I, I would suggest to you that the teacher suggests it's even worse than a treadmill. We get on a treadmill, and now the little screen tells us how many calories we burn, so we're thinking, all right, I have earned food that I can eat as a consequence of those calories it tells me I burned, right? So that, that's a good deal, right? He's saying it's not even that. There's nothing gained here. It's like the hamster on the wheel. It just keeps running and running and running, and it doesn't accomplish anything. That's how the search for meaning looks when there is no attempt to look above the sun. Life that's only ever lived and contemplated under the sun is a wearisome and elusive pursuit. We, again, put the burden on people and stuff if they are the ones that are to provide us with ultimate satisfaction. That's why marriage is break apart. That's why families break apart, because we, we've imported on them our meaning. You must be this for me. You must satisfy this in me. You must do this for me. And then it doesn't happen, and we're not satisfied. And so our culture says you just go on to somebody else and try to find satisfaction somewhere else. It's all like grabbing smoke. It's the third theme, and we see it twice in these opening verses, and it's his use of questions. We'll see this throughout the book. Verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 10, is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new? Lots of questions in Ecclesiastes. This is a great example just of the, the search for the meaning of life. He's, he's kind of taking the role of philosopher and sort of looking at life and asking the hard questions. Why does it happen this way? What's, what's the point? Where is this all going? Why, why should I work so hard? What ultimately is gained by laughter and pleasure when it's inevitably followed by sobriety and even sadness and hardship? What's the benefit of acquiring wisdom when I could just settle for being a fool and eventually all the wisdom I've acquired and the, the degrees that are listed after my name and, and the fool who's gained nothing, we both die, and eventually we're forgotten. Nobody cares. There's nothing left. Why bother? What's the point? I go through all this pursuit of wisdom to try to build something in life, and some 20-year-old comes along and creates an app and makes millions, right? Do you ever get that? Do you ever think about that and go, wow, how come I couldn't think of Facebook, you know, something like that. And he says, you know what? I thought of Facebook. You could put that in there. I, I, I tried all this. 
you know what, at, at the core, it still didn't do it. But he's, he's going to keep asking these questions throughout. By the time Ecclesiastes is done, the thing that we'll learn, fortunately, is these questions are ultimately rhetorical. There are answers. God has not left us to grope in the dark on these things. Uh, God has not left us without the chance to figure it out. But as we work through this book, we're going to see the teacher repeatedly shake his head and say, I don't get it. What's the point? Last theme is at the end of this introductory passage. If you look again at verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Well, it's been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The last thing we'll see today is this mention of forgetfulness. The answer to his question, is there anything new in life, is no. Of course there's not. There's just forgetfulness. See, that everything that we see and we think, oh, wow, that's new, there's been some form of that before. It's just that the next generation has come and thinks it's new. It's kind of like fashion. You know, when we look at people and go, I wore that stuff in the 70s. How is that back, right? It's nothing new. He says it's the same stuff we just forget. The next generation comes along and thinks, wow, this is really hip and new hip. There's a word that dates me, doesn't it? <laughs> It's not new, he says. You just forget. It's just that when, when it seems so substantial and wonderful and amazing, the reality is, give it time. It'll be forgotten. It'll be replaced. There is no remembrance. In fact, chapter 2, verse 16, you look across the page there in 2.16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have long been forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. His point is it doesn't matter. Both are ultimately forgotten. In chapter 4, he's going to talk about a king and about people who praised that king, and then he says, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. He's a king. And yet he says the truth of the matter is at some point down the road, Several kings later, several generations later, people will say, King who? I don't know who that is. It's a distant memory at best. In chapter 9, he tells the story of a city that's under attack. And he says this in chapter 9, verse 15, But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. Wait, this city was under attack. And this guy heroically comes up with whatever solution it is to save the city. And his point is, in the end, people are like, yeah, remember that time? What was that guy's name who had that really great, I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. He says, you're forgotten. And so this theme of forgetfulness will come through again and again because he's saying, if there's a ceiling on all this, and this is all there is, eventually you're gone. You'll be forgotten. So taken together, what we have here is Ecclesiastes is this older, wiser man saying, come here, gather around. I want to tell you some things. This guy who has built, who has experienced pleasure, who is eminently wise, who has done all of these things in life is saying, come on, I, I want to I talk to you. I want to share with you. And you're thinking, this is great. This guy has experienced success. He is going to tell us what he's learned. This is going to be the best motivational speech we have ever heard because this guy can, can speak from experience. And he gathers us all, and we're ready to learn. 
And as soon as he starts talking, it is this bleak, dark, hopeless message. And we're sitting there going, wait a minute. This isn't what I bargained for. I didn't come for this. Give me something to to have excitement about. This isn't a hopeful sermon with how-to steps to success. It's a guy whose basic message is, I had it all. I was smart. I was educated. I had success. I built things. I, I, I had all sorts of wealth. I had any pleasure I could pursue. I grew the best grapes for wine. I, I just did everything that you think you want to do. And I've done it all, and I'm here to tell you it's all hebel. Yeah, that's it? That's as good as it gets? Every bit of it, he says, was like fleeting, worthless vapor. Lay up not for yourselves treasures here on earth where rust and moths corrupt. Right? That's what Jesus said. You put your hope in all of this stuff, and you look at it eventually, and it's out in the shed somewhere, and it's, it's like, wow, that was... We're cleaning some stuff out of our basement, and it's just amazing to me the stuff you find. And when you bought it, when I bought it, I won't blame my wife for that because it's generally me. It seemed like such a cool gadget and such a cool thing, and there it is in a box, and it's useless. That was that was a real great. Robin was right; it was pretty much worthless at the time. And he's saying to us, none of it lasted, none of it added meaning to your life. Even you, he says. One day, after all you've done and all you've accomplished, one day you're going to die. And people will come to your funeral and, and, and they'll weep. And they'll miss you. And there'll be sadness. But you know what's going to happen the next morning? They're going to get up and go to work. And their day is going to begin. And, and, and the cycle is going to begin. And, and over time, you're barely a memory. You may be a teenager or in your 20s and you've got big chunk of life ahead. And this is the time when you are thinking and dreaming and hoping. It's goal setting. It's, it's, it's just time to think about who you might marry and where you'll travel and what you might accomplish. And there's so much out there. You, you may be in your 30s or 40s and that whole treadmill part, you're saying, yep, <laughs> I am there. I feel like every day is just running the treadmill. Kids, work, just goes on, the, the treadmill, but, but I'm doing it kind of with this hope that if I just keep plugging away on that treadmill, it's, it's going to reap some success. You know, in the end, it, it's, it's all for something better, you know, better car, better house. It, it's all going to pay off, and I'll be successful, and, and, and anyway, I'll retire, and I'll be happy, even if once I get through these years. You may be in your 50s or 60s or older, and you can really relate, as I can, to a lot of the teacher's questions, right? You, you've asked these very same questions. You've got more of life now in the rearview mirror than you do out the windshield. And a lot of what the teacher is saying, you can say, mm-hmm, yep, I get it. I understand how somebody can say exactly that. Whatever season of life you're in, God's word in Ecclesiastes is speaking to you. It will seem unsettling and difficult and puzzling at points but I would urge you to stick with it and push through it and keep reading. 
because the call in Ecclesiastes, after calling us again and again to think deeply about life under the sun, what the, the writer in Ecclesiastes ultimately will do at the very end is take us above the sun. And he will say to us, not only is everything not hebel, but here's the real wonder of it all. Everything matters. He turns the whole thing around at the very end and says, actually, everything matters. Because in the end, one of the verses that we're memorizing from the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes is God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. The thing that's important to realize, and we didn't see it here in chapter 1, this is not like, say, Ruth. Um, this is not like Esther where God is sort of, you're not quite sure where God is in the story. The writer of Ecclesiastes will make it clear that he believes in God, that he believes that God exists, and he'll allude to God at several points here. And so this isn't an atheist or an agnostic sort of looking at life, although he's, he's basically pulling apart the atheist or agnostic worldview because that view is simply limited to under the sun. But he's understanding as he's writing this that there is a creator, and we are accountable to that creator, and he's right. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus says, there's coming a day when he will return and he will gather the nations and he will administer a final judgment. And his description of that judgment in Matthew chapter 25 is about your life. And every person's life will ultimately be evidence of their heart. What was done, what was said, what was acted upon will all be evidence of the heart. And where there are righteous deeds, deeds done truly out of sacrifice and love for Christ, that life will reflect a life that is trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. And where those righteous deeds are lacking and the deeds that were done generally were at their core probably selfish, trying to gain something, trying to appear in some way, it will reflect the life that has rejected the Savior. Matthew 25, 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That is a profound statement, but that is exactly where the teacher in Ecclesiastes is seeking to take us. For as futile and as fleeting as life under the sun may appear, there is a king and creator who rules above the sun. And far from leaving those he has created to sort of flounder in subjective, sort of vague darkness, this loving God has revealed himself through his creation and its majesty, through his word, and ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. And so by sending Jesus Christ to come into God in flesh, who had held it all as creator, the, the one who sustains the universe. You want to talk about somebody who truly has it. It's Christ. And yet Christ gives his life on the cross, taking our sin on himself, and taking the punishment that we deserve in our place in order to die for us. And by his resurrection from the dead, he can now give to you and I the eternal life and the forgiveness and the satisfaction that our soul longs for to be brought into a true relationship with our creator. To not just know who God is, 
but to really know him and to find in him lasting joy and eternal life. All is not Hebel. We are living life, at least in, in terms of our logistics under the sun, but we are able to live that life to the glory of our Creator, knowing that there is more above the sun that awaits us for all of eternity, that is fully satisfying, both in this life and the life to come. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Ecclesiastes. I thank you for a book that is as perplexing at times as it can be, that forces us to think deeply about why you would say these things. The reality, Father, is that we understand that all of us came into life thinking the world was about us. We came into life expecting people to wait on us, to provide for our needs, to satisfy our desires. And came to the rude awakening that it's really not like that. Lord, I, I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here this morning who, is not, who has not surrendered their life to you through faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would do a wondrous work today in their heart, that you would open their eyes, that maybe this morning the things that we've read are just so resonating with them that they're, they're going through the routine and they're running on the treadmill and there just doesn't seem to be an end and it just goes on and on and on. Lord, today I pray that you would awaken in them a response of faith and repentance, turning from sin and trusting in, in the one Savior and the, the living water as Jesus Christ came to bring that truly satisfies the soul. And Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, Lord, forgive us for even despite our belief when we sort of act like practical atheists, sort of demanding that people provide us satisfaction and that things bring us joy. By your Spirit's work through your word, continually remind us that there is nothing here on earth that will give us the contentment and the peace in our inner being, in our heart, that can come from trusting in Jesus Christ alone, that can come from not only resting in him, but, but seeking our satisfaction and our peace and our contentment in Christ. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for setting before us scripture that paints this harsh but real reality and calls us now to, to trust in you fully. These things we pray in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.